The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. Good evening. It's great to see everybody. Welcome. You guys okay? Man, thank you. There we go. Yeah, and Kayla and the worship team, thank you so much uh, for leading us in great worship. And especially that last song is going to tie right into what God has put on my heart to share tonight. Um, you know, it's interesting, isn't it? When we come into the world, we're, we're born, we come in with closed fists, right? Babies, we're just are tightly clenched. And our whole lives is a journey of learning to open our hands and release the things that we think we want, the things we think we need, and, and empty our hands so that God can give back to us the things that he really has for us. So that was a beautiful, beautiful close. And um, my name is not Danny Ramos. For those of you I haven't met, uh, my name is John Cook. I'm one of the pastors here. And um, Danny is not with us tonight. Uh, he is not quite 100% yet. He got sick a little bit earlier this week, and he's almost better but not quite. So I get the privilege of being with you tonight uh, and sharing the word, and I'm so excited to be here. Um, and a couple more just sort of administrative housekeeping type announcements, right? It's summertime. Uh, we're kind of working our way through the summer. We have a number of things for you. So uh, this is Wednesday night. This weekend, we have another special guest teacher, Dennis Hodges, who's the pastor at the Church of Yeshua Hamashiach in El Cajon, is going to be here sharing with us all weekend. He's got some great messages to share. So um, if you want, come on out Saturday night. Come on out Sunday morning. We're going to have a great time. Um, and then next Wednesday, one more sort of special uh, speaker before we go, um, um, Dr. David Cummings. Dr. David Cummings, he's here in San Diego. He's a professor of biology, uh, microbiology, at Point Loma Nazarene University. And he's written a book recently. It's called Everybody's Got Bears. And the theory of the book is, it's his story of his journey. He suffered from debilitating uh, anxiety and depression. And so he's going to share with us next Wednesday kind of his journey. And we're going to look together at how as humans in a fallen world, we can regain the peace and the joy that are ours in Christ. So if you have ever struggled with anxiety, if you ever even get a hint of depression, if you know anybody that has, again, next Wednesday is going to be a great time here together as well. All right, well, with that... Um, would you go ahead and open your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 2? 1 Peter chapter 2 is going to be our text for tonight, not the whole chapter. Um, but I will say, you know, sometimes when we study God's Word, we'll dig into a couple of verses, we'll dive real deep, we'll get in there and look around carefully at all the little nuances and cracks and crevices. That is good, and that can be fun. But there's other times we want to take a step back, because sometimes if we're in all the details, we sort of miss the forest because we can only see the trees, right? Sometimes it's really good in God's Word. I like to step back and kind of take a bigger view and look at kind of the bigger picture, and that's the kind of study I want to do tonight. Um, I've titled this message, Just Do Good. Just Do Good. Um, and I'm trying to answer the question for us tonight, how do good works fit into the life of a believer? What place do good works have in our life? And, but before we jump in, um, would you join me in prayer? Father, Thank you again uh, for drawing us here tonight. Thank you, Lord, that we can come into your house. Lord, the place where you promised you'd meet with us. Lord, anytime, 
anytime we'd like because, Lord, you gave your son. Jesus, you came and you opened the doors for us, as it were, by the gift of your life, by the sacrifice that you made for us. Lord, we can now come in freely, boldly, Lord, on our good days, on our bad days, uh, when we're up and when we're down. So, Lord, tonight we're here. You know each one of our journeys. You've been with us all day, so you know the events and the circumstances that have led us here. Lord, we just want to pause. We want to just sit quietly before you, Lord. Now we want to open our hands and say, Lord, here we are. We're ready to receive from you tonight whatever you have for us. So, Lord, would you open our minds, would you open our hearts to see and to hear the things that you want to share with us? Lord, would you plant seeds of life from your word into our hearts so that they might take root, grow up, and bear fruit for your name. And it's in your name's sake we pray, Jesus. Amen. Okay, well, some of you might remember, this was a few years ago, but Nike came up with this pretty famous slogan. You might have seen it once or twice. You ever, you ever see those ads that said, just do it? You know, just do it. Um, it started out actually as a marketing campaign. The year was 1988, and as hard as it is to imagine, Nike was just a small, struggling athletic shoe company located in Beaverton, Oregon. In fact, at that time, they were getting their clocks cleaned in the market by this big European company called Reebok. See, Reebok was just faster at coming out with new models, new shoes, Nike was too slow, and they were losing market share, losing sales. They were kind of struggling, literally, for their lives. And it was at that moment that they launched this novel marketing campaign. They, they called it the Just Do It campaign. And it, as I'll tell you in a moment, it was a very effective campaign for them uh, over the first 10 years since they launched it. Between 1988 and 1998, Nike's uh, market share grew from 18% to 43%. Their sales over that time period grew from $800 million to $9 billion per year. Uh, and believe it or not, last year Nike's sales were $45 billion. So this campaign was very effective at sort of turning the company around, leading it forward. And in fact, it was so successful that while it began as a marketing campaign, ultimately it became, kind of became a brand identity for Nike. It, became, it kind of became who they were. Um, and as, as Nike became known as this company that would just get things done, that's the kind of company they were. And, and the customers that bought their athletic wear products they identified with that Just Do It campaign. They began to see themselves as someone who would do the hard work, do hard things in their lives, whatever was necessary to move themselves forward, whether that might be you know, taking up a healthier lifestyle or maybe quitting a, a, a dead-end sort of a job. So very effective brand identity. And I think in that same way that Just Do It became a brand identity for Nike, I think if Peter was here and he was going to give us a brand identity tonight as followers of Jesus, I think his slogan for us would be, Just Do Good. Just go do good. It's just that simple. Keep it simple. Don't overthink it. Just go out and do good everywhere you can, to everyone you can, every chance you get. And in fact, our media team, very kindly to me, kind of made up a little brand campaign. There it is on the screens. What do you guys think? Should we adopt that? I like it. Yeah, I'm going to pitch it to Daniel when he gets back from vacation. Anyway. Well, doing good, and why is it so central to us as believers? That's kind of what I want to look at tonight. Doing good is what identifies us as followers of Jesus. When people see us doing good, they, they know that we're with Jesus. And this is actually one of the main messages of the book of 1 Peter. Uh, we see it all over, we see it all over the, the book. But we're going to start tonight in 1 Peter chapter 2. 
verse 11. So if you would turn there with me, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. I'm just going to read through about 14 verses. Again, we're going to take a bigger chunk here, and we're going to try to take a bigger picture view of what it means to do good and how that fits into our lives. All right, so Peter says here, starting in verse 11, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your souls. And I want you to live such good lives among the pagans that although they might accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. I want you also to submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, there it is again, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but don't use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers, fear God, and honor the emperor. And finally, slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but even to those who are harsh, for it's commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they're conscience of God. But how is it to your credit if you uh, receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good, there it is again, if you suffer for doing good and endure it, this is commendable before God because to this you were called because Christ suffered for you. He left you an example that you should follow in his steps. And quoting from Isaiah, Peter says, he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. But when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed, for you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. Amen. Well, did you notice Peter's emphasis on doing good in that big passage there? I tried to slow down and kind of highlight it. He actually mentions it four times in those 14 verses. Twice in verse 12, I'm sorry, once in verse 12, again in verse 15, and again in verse 20, four separate times. And if we had time and could keep reading this letter tonight, we would discover again in chapter 3 and again in chapter 4, Peter keeps coming back to this idea of doing good, good works in the life of a believer. So in total, he exhorts believers 10 times in this one letter to do good. So suffice it to say that for Peter, Doing good is one of the primary attributes or primary hallmarks of the life of a believer. And this isn't just unique to him. In fact, throughout the rest of the New Testament, we are encouraged as followers of Jesus to practice good a total of 35 additional times. So that's 45 times across the New Testament, the Gospels and all the epistles, that we're told as a follower of Jesus, good works ought to be evident in our lives. So obviously it's a big topic for us, good works. Where does it fit in? So I want to try to answer three questions. Again, a big look at this. I want to try to answer three simple questions about good works for us as believers. Number one, what part do good works play in our lives as believers? How do they fit in? Number two, why are good works important 
as we follow Jesus. Why is, did God set it up this way? Why does he want us to do good works? And finally, number three, if it is important to us and if it's important to God, then how is it that we're to go about doing good? What, what the how question? How, how do we do it in our lives? And we're going to use, I'll, I'll talk about doing good and good works kind of synonymously tonight. When I say that, I mean the same thing, doing good and good works. All right, so let's start with that first question. What part do good works play in our lives as believers? Where do they fit in? And the short answer is, good works are not necessary for our salvation, but they should be a byproduct of our salvation. They're not necessary for our salvation, but they certainly should be a byproduct of our salvation. Said another way, we're not saved by doing good, but we are saved so that we can begin doing good. And that's something the Bible tells us over and over again. Good works are not any part of our salvation. The Apostle Paul, who, as you probably know, is the author of more than half of the New Testament, he affirms this over and over again throughout his letters. Probably one of the clearest and most emphatic places where he declares this is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. You're probably all familiar with it, but just in case you're not, I had it put up on the screen there with me. But why don't we read this one together? Paul writes, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. See, God is so generous and so passionate for everyone to receive the salvation that he has for us that he's made it super simple for all of us. Salvation is a free gift. It cannot be earned. Notice he said it's not by works. It can only be received by faith in the finished work that Jesus has for us. So if you happen to grow up in a faith tradition where good works were emphasized as a means to enter into heaven, let's say, or maybe as an important part of your relationship with God, something that you needed to do to be in fellowship with him, I think this is really good news for us tonight, right? What this tells us is God already loves us completely. There's nothing you can do and there's nothing you can fail to do that will make God love you any more or any less than he already does tonight. He made you in his image and I can promise you he's madly in love with you tonight right where you are. That's why he offers all of us the free gift of salvation through the simple act of faith in his son. Okay, so if good works don't procure salvation for us, they should, however, be a product of our salvation. It's not our means of obtaining salvation, but it's a byproduct of receiving salvation. And that is, once we put our faith in Jesus, good works should normally just be a part of our lives. And again, we see that in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, the very next verse. Paul goes on to say, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, there they are, which God prepared beforehand that all we have to do is simply walk in them. So salvation is not by works. But notice, once we've received that gift of salvation, we discover that God's been working in our lives all along. Notice there's two references to work here. Number one, we find out he's been working in us. Paul tells us we are his workmanship. There's that work word again. We're his workmanship. And what that word speaks of, it speaks of the product of an artisan, a craftsman. Uh, think of a sculpture by Michelangelo or maybe a painting by Edgar Degas, you know, one of those beautiful ballerinas. My daughter Sophie loves those paintings. She used to do ballet when she was little. Or even a poem perhaps written by King David, right? Just these magnificent works of art. Paul is saying here, we are God's workmanship. We're his masterpiece. He's been working on us 
all along. But not only has he been working on us, he also tells us that God has been preparing good works for us. Notice we're created in Christ Jesus for good works. So there are good works he has prepared for us, and he wants us, he invites us to walk in them. These are good works that are particular to us, peculiar to our, they're like you think of them as uniquely situated for you and me. God makes them individually for each one of us. So these are things that he wants us to walk in because of the gifts he's given us, or maybe the city we're living in, or perhaps the family that he's made us a part of, or even the job he's given us to do, the neighborhood you live in. You get my point. These are unique things, good works that God has prepared for us. He wants to give them to us every day. And then he asks us, would you walk in this with me? Would you, would you, is this something you would do for me? And as we walk in these good works, what happens is people notice what we're doing and give God the glory. Jesus himself said, this is what it looks like to be one of his disciples before the world. Matthew 5.16. Here's another scripture you guys are really familiar with, but let's read it together. Jesus said, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Again, there it is by Jesus' own lips. There's good works that God has prepared for us, and he wants us to walk in them. And as we walk in them, people will see that and notice it, and they'll give glory to God. So as followers of Jesus, good works should be a natural part of our lives after we've come to salvation, which is a great transition into our next big question, which is, so since good works are an important part of our lives, why did God set it up that way? And why are good works so important to our journey? And the main point here is, God works, sorry, good works are the primary means that God has chosen to reveal himself to the lost world around us. Let me say it again. Good works are the primary means, the primary way that God has chosen to reveal himself in his kingdom to the lost world around us. And let me say this, and now Daniel's on vacation, so when he gets back, don't tell him I said this from his pulpit, but even more than good preaching, which is really important, I'm not saying preaching is important, but more than good preaching, good works among God's kids reveal God and the reality of his kingdom to a broken world. So let me walk you through how this works, all right? Like everything else, this whole thing, it starts with God, right? Good works reflect God because he himself is good, right? God is good. Radical goodness is part of God's own nature. And we see this about God. This is something God revealed to us by himself He declared this to Moses when they had this fantastic conversation on the top of Mount Sinai. That whole conversation, if you want to read it later, it's in Exodus chapter 33 and 34. God brought Moses on the mountain. They had this great conversation. Moses said, God, show me your glory. God said, I'll make all my goodness pass before you and I'll declare my name before you. But as Moses went up, God said, I can't, you can't see me, but I'll tell you what, I'll hide you here in this little crack in the rock and I'll cause my goodness to pass by you, and I'll declare my name before you. So you go on to Exodus chapter 34, and Exodus chapter 34, verse 6, God passed by and he said, here's who I am, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, notice, abounding in goodness and truth. I'm merciful and gracious, long-suffering, abounding in goodness and truth. Did you know that is the most frequently quoted verse in all of the Bible. 
Exodus 34.6. It's referred to all over the Old Testament, even into the New Testament, and that probably shouldn't surprise us because it's God's most direct revelation of himself, who he is, before Jesus came. Until Jesus stepped into the earth, this was the most direct and thorough revelation that God had ever given us of who he is. And notice what he said about himself. He didn't say, I'm just sort of good, or sometimes I'm good when I'm in a good mood, I can do good things. No. What he said was, I am abounding in goodness, abounding in loving kindness. That word abounding, it means overflowing, filled to the top. In other words, more, I have more than enough goodness for everyone. He's not in short supply. He's got plenty of goodness for you and me, and he'll give us plenty to give away to everybody else. So, number one, notice he's full of goodness, overflowing with it. Number two, notice that his goodness, this essential part of who he is, it's his nature, it's not dependent on anyone else. He, so in doing good, when God does something good, he's not doing it in response to anything that someone else has done or someone else hasn't done. And that's why he loves you right now. He loves me right where we are, not because of anything we've done for him or failed to do. He loves us because that's who he is. He's got goodness as part of his nature. And so he does good to everyone, everywhere, all the time, simply because that's who he is. God is good all the time. In fact, let's do that. God is good all the time. Amen. That he is, isn't he? Hallelujah. That's been part of our church for a long time. So abounding in goodness. That's how God describes himself. I am abounding in goodness. You can count on it. And so because of God's exceeding overwhelming goodness, because that's part of who he is in his nature, it shouldn't again surprise us that Jesus' life was characterized by love and good works. And we see this in Acts chapter 10. This is the account of where Peter was invited to go share the gospel with Cornelius. Remember, Cornelius was a Roman centurion. He lived, uh, you know, up in Caesarea. He was, he was stationed there, and he was very devout and pious, and he'd been praying, and an angel came to him and said, go send for Peter. He'll tell you, he'll answer your questions. So they sent, he sent men down, and Peter came, went up to Caesarea, and, you know, walked in. This is kind of the dream scenario for every believer. You show up in a stranger's house, and you say, yes, I'm here. Can I help you? Yes, you have a message for me. Tell me. What? I'm waiting to hear you. <laughs> Talk about an open door for the gospel, right? And so Peter goes in, and he begins to just share the story of Jesus' life. And in Acts 10, 37, this is how Peter, remember, he was an eyewitness to this. This is how Peter chose to summarize Jesus' life. He said to Cornelius, God and God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil because God was with him. Listen to that. Because God was with Jesus, what did his life look like? He went around doing good. And he healed everyone who was oppressed by the devil. So good works, radical goodness were just part of Jesus' testimony. It characterized everything he did. And think about what we read in the Gospels, right? Jesus spent time with the outcasts. He just didn't try to hang out with the popular people, the rich and famous. Um, he fed the hungry. He healed the sick. He cast out demons. He confronted hypocrisy where he saw it. I mean, he was authentic. Think about it. The world today is hungry for authenticity. They're so tired of just seeing all this hypocrisy in our leaders everywhere, and not just elected politicians, but, you know, faith leaders, and they're just people are stumbling everywhere. Jesus was authentic. His life matched up with his preaching like no one else has ever had or ever will. And ultimately, 
He gave his life a ransom for many. So he went about doing radical goodness and, and, and reflected the, the nature of God in that way. And so because we now have chosen to, if you're a follower of Jesus tonight, if you're here and you've chosen to follow him, then the author of Hebrews tells us that our lives also should be just full of love and good works. These are the things that ought to characterize our lives. Hebrews 10, 24, I've asked him to put it up on the screen. Look what the author says. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. This is one of the first exhortations of the book of Hebrews. After 10 chapters of all Jesus did for us, the priest according to the order of Melchizedek and how he went in and offered his blood once for sins. I mean, all this, the author turns in the middle of chapter 10 and says, so here's how you should respond to that. And there's three or four things he says. This is one of them. One of the ways we need to respond as children of God is we together as the body of Christ, we should be constantly stirring each other up to what? To study more? To pray more? Yeah, those are good things. But he says, no, you ought to be, love ought to be a hallmark of your life and good works. Those are things that people ought to see in you. All right, so that's the second reason that God has set it up this way. Why are good works important? Because it's God's nature, it's who he is, that's how we reflect him and reveal him, and because that's the example Jesus set for us. We want to follow Jesus' example. A third reason, we're going to go back to Peter chapter 2 now, a third reason that good works are important to followers of Jesus is because Peter shows us in chapter 2 here that good works, when we do good works, we're able to turn protesters into praisers. Good works can turn protesters into praisers. And we see this in verse 15 and again in verse 12. Look with me in a minute, at, um, if you have your Bible open, to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 15. Look, Peter writes, For it's God's will, this is God's will for us, that in doing good, so just as we go about doing good in our lives, we should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. And then look up at verse 12. Live such good lives among the pagans, or some translations say live among the evildoers in such a good way that though they might accuse you of wrongdoing, they would see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. So even though they're evildoers, by noticing the good deeds that we do, they will one day also praise God themselves. Again, so these are ignorant, foolish people, people that are opposed to the gospel, but by our good works, Peter says we can turn them from protesters into praisers. Isn't that amazing? And this is really, I'm going to explain how this works, right? So as we all know well, I think, living in 2022, the world, by and large, is opposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? Not really interested. Um, and that's because the gospel is offensive, Right? The gospel is offensive because it says that I need help. I can't have a relationship with God based on my own merits. I need a Savior. And Jesus came and revealed himself as the one and only way to the Father. And when he did that, that means that there, you know, I can't do it on my own. And for that reason, most of the world rejected Jesus. And it's in this context, Peter says, among people that have rejected the gospels, the foolish, the scoffers, the ones that you know, don't want anything to do with the gospel. He says, in this context, Peter says that our good works are incredibly powerful. And that's because although they might reject the message, they cannot deny the reality of the good works that are done by those who have believed, the good works that are demonstrated right in front of them, especially when they know that we're followers of Jesus. And so they know that our lives are, we were doing this because we're following him. Peter says in verse 12 here that there's an authenticity to these good works, and because of that, therefore, they have a power that even skeptics and atheists can't deny. 
And Peter could write this to us because he had experienced this himself firsthand. Again, in Acts chapter 3, remember? Peter and John were going to the temple to pray. They went by the gate beautiful. There was a lame man who was asking for alms. And Peter saw him. And Peter just, the Holy Spirit said, Peter, I want to heal him. So Peter stopped. Remember the story? I've got no cash for you. I can't give you what you're looking for, but I got something even better. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise up, take up your bed and walk, right? And the man stood up, leaping and praising God, and Peter preached this amazing message, and again, thousands more came into the kingdom. That's how Acts chapter 3 ends. Well, as you guys know, there were people hanging around then who didn't like the message. They felt threatened, the Jewish religious leaders, and so they called a council meeting together, and they hauled Peter and John and this formerly lame man in, and they interrogated them. They said, under whose authority did you do this miracle? What, what, who gave you the right to heal this man in front of the temple? And Peter preached again, this time to the religious leaders. And he said, you know, Jesus of Nazareth, whom you crucified. So he preached this bold message. The religious leaders said, okay, that's enough of you. Get out. We need to talk. And as they excused Peter and John and the formerly lame man from the room, they had this conversation among themselves. And at the end, in Acts chapter 4, verse 16, at the end, they say, what are we going to do with these men? We don't just do with them. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they've performed this notable sign, and we can't deny it. See, even though they could deny the message, it's not true, don't believe in Jesus, they couldn't deny the good work. Right? The good work spoke for itself. And so in our lives, so too in our lives, doing good operates in the same way. People might reject the gospel message, but they can't deny the reality of the good works that we do in Jesus' name. And one final reason, why does it work this way? Um, again, because this is God's nature, because this is how Jesus lived, because it can turn protesters into praisers, and finally, good works, especially when they're done in the face of injustice, bring others back to Jesus. Our suffering can lead to others' salvation. And that's what Peter shows us at the end of this chapter, that last section starting in verse, 16, or verse 18, where he says, you know, slaves, submit yourself to your masters. He gives us this difficult news. Um, in verse 21, he says, to this you were called, doing good works in the face of injustice, doing good works for people that are ripping you off. He says, to this, my brothers and sisters, if you're a follower of Jesus, this is part of the calling that's on your life. This is kind of hard news, but it's true. He says, to this you are called, and what is it? In verse 20, if you suffer for doing good and endure it, this is commendable before God. If you suffer for doing good, you do something good for some, you do a good work, you, you represent God to someone, and they suffer anyway. He says, this is what you're called to. It's commendable for, before God. And so what he says is, look, you got to do a good work even if you know you're going to get the short end of the bargain. Could be a family member could be your spouse, could be a sibling, right? They are not treating you kindly. They are, you're doing your best to follow Jesus, and you know it. God says, it's okay. Keep doing good. Why? Again, number one, look at verse 21, because this is the example Christ left for us. Number one, again, this is Jesus' example. He did good and suffered unjustly for it. So if we're going to follow in his footsteps, we have to do that. And what was the result? Why did he do it? When they heard, verse 23, when they hurled their insults at him, he didn't retaliate. When he suffered, he didn't threaten back, right? He just kept doing the will of the Father, which was to do good. And why? 
He actually went to the cross for us in verse 25. For because we were like sheep going astray, but now, because he did good for us and suffered anyway, but now we have returned to him, the shepherd and overseer of our souls. See, it was his suffering in the face of all that injustice that turned us back to him. His suffering turned us into saints. And now he extends the invitation to us. He says, so now you're my disciples, you're my followers. I want you to follow me in this. Do good to others, even if they mistreat you, so that they too can return to him. And that's a great transition really to our final question, which is, okay, if we know the place that good works have in our lives, doing good, it's important to us as believers. It's a, it's a byproduct of our salvation. And if we know why God set it up this way, because that's just who he is. That's how he's chosen to reveal himself to the world. And it's a powerful revelation. It's a revelation that, you know, people just cannot deny. In fact, it can transform their lives when they see it. If that's true, then how are we to go about doing good works? What do these good works look like in our lives? And to answer this last question, I've got to tell you, I've got some good news for you, and I've got some bad news. So as a good pastor, as a shepherd who loves you, let's start with the bad news first and get it out of the way, okay? The bad news is doing good works is difficult because of the circumstances that God, where God asks us to do them. Let me say it again. Doing good works is difficult because of the circumstances where God asks us to do them, or more specifically, because of the people for whom God asks, God asks us to do them for. That's really why good works are hard, because there's a bunch of people we have to do them for who aren't appreciative and don't notice and don't thank us. And we see this in Peter's text. Again, notice the situations we're gonna just, where Peter has exhorted us here in chapter 2 to do good. Keep doing good. Notice in verse 12, Peter's describing a believer who's living before a hostile culture, right? These are people, he says, you're living among pagans who are accusing you of wrong, right? He's just describing living in a hostile culture. You guys, can you feel the hostility of the culture here in America toward us? I mean, he says, these are people, they don't appreciate you. They don't agree with you. They don't, they're not for you. And yet it's in front of those people. You have to keep doing good. That's, that's what we're called to. Verses 13 to 17 He's describing a believer living under the authority, uh, sorry, the whims of an overbearing authority. He says, submit to, for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether the emperor. Back when Peter wrote this, there was a king. His name was Caesar Nero. You think he was kind to Christians? You think he had, you know, a gentleness for followers of Jesus? I mean, he was whims, overbearing, harsh, or to governors who were sent to punish those. It's in front of this overbearing authority he says in verse 15 that by doing good in front of them, we can silence foolish talk. Again, how many of you have felt in the last couple of years like you've been living under the whims of an overbearing authority? I'm not asking for, don't raise your hand, I'm not asking for testimony, but right, we, we experience this. And do you want to do good for them? That's not the first thing I think that comes to my mind, at least not in my flesh. But this is, Peter says, this is when you need to do good. And finally, again, verses 18 to 25 Peter says, we have to do good for people where we've suffered unjustly because of their selfishness or their whims, whatever reason. We have to, even though they mistreat us, we still are called to do good for them. In all those situations, notice Peter's answer is the same. Just do good. Just do good. Keep it simple. Ask God what the good works are he's prepared for you that day and just go walk in them. And you know, Peter didn't make this up. Again, he heard this directly from Jesus' own lips. Right? In his Sermon on the Mount, 
Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, verse 35, he said, love your enemies. In fact, you know what? Let's read this together. This is really profound. Love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Does that excite you? Are you ready to go out tonight and just love on all the wicked, evil people in your life? I'm only half joking, but it's, notice Jesus himself said, because my Father, he's kind to them. He can, remember I told you earlier this message, he loves them, even though they haven't received the message, even though they haven't returned to the shepherd and overseer of their souls yet. God loves them. And as a follower of Jesus, you're his hands and feet. He, he, he's inviting you into the game. This is the heart of our Father. And so if, if we're his children, we've got to have that same heart. So if that's the bad news, if that's true, it's these good, you know, good works to people that love us, they're easy. But the good works God's talking about here, the good works Jesus is talking about, these are the ones that are difficult. It's hard to do in our flesh. If that's true, last question, then where do we find the motivation to do these kinds of good works? Where can we find the strength to keep it up? We might do it once or twice, but when someone just keeps mistreating us, how do we keep it up? Well, this is where the good news comes in. Because this is why. Our good works are a response to all, God that, to all that God has already done for us. It's simply a response to the goodness he's already given to us. Now, said another way, we can only do this, these kind of good works for others out of the overflow of the goodness that God's already showered upon us. This is Peter's encouragement in verses 9 and 10. So I know I'm doing this out of order, but let's go back up. I want to sort of land tonight on 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Look what he says that God has done for us. He says, but you, speaking to every one of us in this room tonight, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You're God's special possession. Why did he do that? So that you might declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, you were orphans, outcasts. But now, you're not just any people, you're the people of God. Once you'd received no mercy, but now you've received his mercy. Two little things I want to highlight there. Notice in verse 9, Peter says, first, you know what? We are a chosen generation. We have been chosen by God. God chose you. He chose me. If you're sitting anywhere near someone tonight, take a second, look at them, and just say to them, you know what? God chose me. He picked me. It's amazing. Yeah. I don't know if you guys saw this, but a couple days ago, I saw this little headline. Did, can you believe the United Nations, I don't know how reliable this is, but the United Nations came out a couple days ago, and they predict that on November 15th, 2022, and how they know this, I don't know, the eight billionth person in the world, living person in the world is, is going to be born. We're going to be at 8 billion people in the world in about five months, guys. And again, I don't ask me how they know that, but that's a lot of people, right? 8 billion people. So again, out of those 8 billion people, guess what? If you can hear the sound of my voice tonight, God chose you. Amen. He picked you. One out of 8 billion. That alone makes you really special, really important to him. So number one, you were chosen. We matter to him. And number two, because he chose us, Peter tells us there that we are God's special possession. 
or the the King James, I like the King James has some great translations, right? Vain jangling, um, you know, the, the King James says this, they translate that, we are a peculiar people. And by that, he doesn't mean that we're just weird, right? It's not that kind of peculiar. No, the Greek word Peter uses here, it conveys this idea of something that's of great significance to its owner, something that's very precious. Precious is a good translation. We're a precious people to God. An example would be something like maybe a book that sat on Abraham Lincoln's bookshelf, or maybe a desk where Winston Churchill wrote his memoirs, or maybe even a pipe that C.S. Lewis had smoked, right? For me, I have something that's very, as I thought about this tonight, I have something that's very precious to me. For me, my peculiar possession is Larry the Lion. Larry the Lion, there he is. Larry the Lion is a little stuffed animal I got when I was about two years old. You can see all his furs rubbed off. I used to hold him really close. Larry was so, he was so sweet to me. And and Larry, the cool thing about Larry, you can't see in the picture, but Larry actually was a talking lion. He had this little talk box inside of him and this little pull string with a little hoop on it. And I remember you could pull it out and you'd release it. And as it went back in, you know, it would wind the motor up. And then as the string would go back in, Larry would, he had about three or four things he would say. Again, I, and, and, and to this day, I can't remember them because tragically, when I was about four years old, I pulled that string out one time and the ring broke off and the string went in and that was the last word Larry ever said. He's been mute for like 50 years now and I just can't remember what he used to say to me. But there's Larry the Lion, very precious to me. And see, the idea behind this is none of these items, Larry the Lion, C.S. Lewis's pipe, a book on Abraham Lincoln's shelf, none of these things are valuable on their own. They have no inherent worth. Rather, their great value is a result of the significance of who their owner was. So maybe Larry's not that significant, but he is to me. Anyway, but the value of the item is a result of the significance of the owner, who he or she is, and because of that item's particular value to that owner. Does that make sense? Significance of the owner and the significance of the item to the owner. So stop for a minute and just imagine with me. Imagine the value that you have because you belong to God himself and you're precious to him. Just ponder that for a minute. You belong to God. You're his. What's he worth? How significant is he? And you're precious. Peter says here, you are precious to him. I mean, we are priceless in his eyes. We're of infinite worth. And how do we know that? And let me, you know, at this point, let me invite the worship team to come back out. We're going to land the plane here for good in a minute. How do we know how precious we are to God? Because look at the trade he made for us. Right? He sent his only begotten son. John 3.16, as Daniel preached just a couple weeks ago, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. How valuable was Jesus to God? Well, Colossians chapter 2 says that the fullness of the Godhead dwelt bodily in him. So that means everything that God is, everything that he had, all of himself that was invested in Jesus. And then he said, here, go. I'm going to give you an exchange for each one of the people I've chosen. So what are we worth? How precious are you to God? There's no, there's no, there's no scale that measures that. There's, there's no way to calculate it. You're of infinite worth to God, and that's why we can trust him. 
even when he asks us to walk in these good works with difficult people and keep doing good things before people who don't appreciate it and maybe don't notice and haven't yet said yes to Jesus. They're just a stubborn and hard world. It's okay. God loves them, and he's called us. He's invited us to walk before them and go about loving them and doing good. He's invited us to lay our life down. So close your eyes. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for your radical goodness. Lord, it was radical that you put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden. I mean, that's first level crazy. Right? Who does that? Knowing what could happen. Knowing what would happen, Lord. It wasn't even a mystery to you. You knew you would send your son. Jesus, you were the lamb of God that was slain before the foundations of the earth were laid. Because, Father, you knew that we would rebel against you. You knew we wouldn't obey you. We wouldn't just do what you'd asked us to do because you'd been so good and so kind to us. And you were open to that, Father, because you just, that gave you another opportunity to show us in an even deeper and more profound way how much you really love us. You were able to give us something far better than a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You gave us your son, Jesus, the one and only son, Jesus, thank you for coming. You freely gave your life for us because like the Father, you loved us. You were full of love and good works. Lord, you, that was the good work that your Father had prepared for you to walk in, to go to the cross for us. Lord, and we weren't cheering for you. We weren't appreciative. We weren't grateful. Lord, like everybody else, You died for us while we were yet sinners. We were still shaking our fist at you. As Peter said tonight, Lord, we were mocking. We were reviling. And you didn't quit. You wouldn't turn back. You just kept going because that was the good work that the Father had set before you. Oh, Jesus, would you pierce our hearts tonight with your goodness, with your radical goodness, with your love for us? Lord, would it just sink in that you chose us and we're precious to you? So how could we not trust you with our lives? How could we not open our hands, Lord, open our arms and just say, Father, here I am. I don't care about my dreams. I got ideas, but Lord, they're nothing compared to what you have for me. So Father, here we are. Here we are. Lord, take our lives. We offer them up to you as living sacrifices. Would you... Show us, Lord, tonight and tomorrow and the day after that the good works that you prepared for us. Lord, give us the courage and the faith to walk in them, Lord, knowing we don't have to watch out for ourselves. We don't have to, we're not, don't have us live from a mentality of scarcity. We've got to protect ourselves and make sure we take care of ourselves. Lord, let us trust you to watch out for us. Like Jesus, Lord, may we commit ourselves to you, Father, the one who judges faithfully. You will balance the scales. Lord, anything we lose now, you will more than make up for in the days to come. Lord, thank you that we have an inheritance and it's life with you forevermore. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. 
If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our midweek revive service held Wednesday evenings. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.